Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 78. Now, this is part two of the ratios episodes. If you haven't listened to my previous episode, that is episode 77, it would be useful to do that first before proceeding on with this one. That episode was all about ratios, particularly the price-to-earnings ratio. Now, the two-part series is more about learning how to do fundamental stock analysis. And sometimes active investors use this process to be able to find out which stocks to buy, which stocks are undervalued, and which companies are undervalued. Now, I don't do active investing, so for me, such ratios are not particularly useful, but I thought I'd do a couple of episodes about active investing um, just to make it a little bit more relevant um, for people that are interested in active investing, but also interested in um, ratios and uh, you know mathematics in general, because a lot of it is very geeky stuff. Um, and I've really learned a lot in the last couple of episodes about ratios. And now when I look at, you know, companies in general, um, even though I don't actively invest, even though I don't, um, you know, uh, stock analyze and, and, and do fundamental analysis to be able to invest, um, I find it very interesting and intriguing to look at these ratios because you can learn a lot uh, about a company just by analyzing these four basic ratios. So in this episode, um, it's more about the price to book ratio and also the return on equity ratio. Um, and again, Yahoo Finance has great information about each company. You can you can actually put in whatever company you want and just Google Yahoo Finance and you can actually go through the statistics and um, all of these figures are available for most companies. So if you're interested and into this sort of stuff, I think that's the place to go to. Google Finance is also very good, um, and also MarketWatch is also very good as well. And, of course, our very own ASX website is also very good. Now, just to recap about the previous episode, uh, not only did we discuss the price-to-earnings ratio, we also discussed earnings per share, what it means. We talked about the various types of price-to-earnings ratio, such as absolute price-to-earnings ratio and relative price-to-earnings ratio. And we also talked about the price-to-earnings-to-growth ratio, which is the PEG ratio, which, which is quite, quite useful. Um, we discussed their limitations as well. So just using one specific type of ratio and just basing your opinion based on that um, is not useful. You need to look at a wide array of um, parameters um, and price earnings ratio is just one of the statistics that is relevant to active investors. So in this episode, we'll discuss price to book ratio and return on equity ratio uh, and also talk about some of the subtopics um, associated with this as well. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the aim is three things. Number one, educate. Number two, empower. And number three, entertain. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. 
I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions after listening to my episodes um, appropriate with your advisors. So make sure you discuss it with them. Um, don't just randomly make decisions based on me talking about um, you know, fundamental analysis and passive investing. I think you know, it's got to be associated with your own personal financial situation. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to learn about personal finance. That's the whole point of this channel. Now, if you're stuck on what to do and you're new to this channel, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to investing, saving, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one, pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money that you've worked very hard for. Step two, invest that money, ideally in something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand passive investing. I understand index funds, so that's where I'll put my money. Step three, reinvest the dividends. With any investment, you might have some income associated with that investment, so make sure you take that income and put it back into the investment because the power of compounding with reinvested dividends over the long term is phenomenal. Step four, long term. Do it for the long term. What does that mean? Not five, not 10, not even 15 years. In my view, long term is at least 20 years, if not 30, if not 40 plus years. The longer you do it, the more likely you'll be successful in your investing life and the more likely you'll end up with more money than you'd ever require in your retirement. And lastly, my favorite step is automation. Automate the investments forever. Make sure you don't have to manually do most things. If it happens automatically, it's going to happen in the background. You're not going to forget about it, and you're going to do it more often than not. Now, if you did these five steps, you're more likely than ever um, to retire with a lot of money. And of course, remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring you happiness. It allows you to make your life a little bit better, but more importantly, make the lives of people around you better as well. Use it as a tool. Before we get on to the main topic of ratios, just to reiterate the basic principles here, okay? I get asked a lot about this uh, almost on a daily basis. I get multiple Facebook messages every single day. You know, what is a stock tip? When should I invest? Where should I put my money, etc., etc. And, you know, my answer is, of course, I'm not a financial advisor, but my answer is almost always the same in addition to that. And that is you need to set up habits to put aside money you need to start investing and you need to start now. You need to start as early as you possibly can. The people that don't retire comfortably are not the ones who tried to find the perfect investment. LICs or ETFs or index funds or individual shares, oil, property. You know, the people that retire comfortably are not the ones that found the perfect investment. It's the people who never um, started to invest or start way too late. Okay, so number one, you need to pay yourself first. You need to start investing. You need to get rid of that consumer debt. Um, I still get a fair bit of Facebook messages about people um, having consumer debt. Um, consumer debt is bad. Okay, don't have consumer debt um, because it is like swimming with an anchor attached to your ankle. 
I was discussing uh, with a doctor, actually, um, who happens to be a super specialist. So what that means is they've done a fair bit of training in medicine, and then they've gone on, and th- and this particular doctor is a super specialist. So they're, they're, they're specialized in surgery, not only in surgery, but they're specialized in a specific part of the body when it comes to surgery. So it takes a lot of years of training to do that. Now, for most people, surgeons make a lot of money. In fact, the ATO stats are very clear. Surgeons and anaesthetists, for obvious reasons, make the most money per year on average, okay? And I think the figures are somewhere around 360000 on average for surgeons and about three hundred k for anaesthetists. Now, I can tell you right now that for a surgeon making $300,000 per year is actually very low. Most surgeons probably sitting at about four hundred, five hundred, dollars or six hundred, and some of them probably over a mil or two mil, depending on the type of um, surgery that they do. And I know this particular person is a super specialist, so they're probably well in excess of one to $1.5 million a year. Okay, But here's the catch. It takes a long time to train to become a surgeon. From medical school, we're talking in excess of at least 15 years of training. And that is if you pass everything, get into internship, residency, registrarship, and surgical training all on the first attempt. And I can tell you that most people don't do that on the first attempt. To get into something like surgery is actually quite difficult. Um, and to get through surgery um, is actually quite difficult. And on the other hand, to actually become an established sur- surgeon once you graduated as a fellow is extremely difficult difficult. Okay, so minimum 15 years, probably looking at about 16 to 20 years of training. That's the catch, right? It's great because they do all this training, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years down the line to make the big bucks. But as I was talking to the surgeon, one thing became quite apparent. It was obvious they were focused primarily on their career all of this time, right? Which is fantastic. I mean, they train so hard, they need to be on the ball, they need to be concentrating 24-7 really um, and make sure that their skills are fine-tuned. You know, they can't afford to make mistakes, so they need to really focus on their career, which is fantastic. But they forgot to invest. They forgot to build habits right from day one. Um, So as a result of that, now they've lost 20 years of a head start. And ironically, the person who didn't go to uni, who didn't do medicine, who didn't become a surgeon, and perhaps just did a trade or another course like engineering, a lawyer, whatever it is, can potentially be worth a lot more in terms of their actual net worth than the person who went and did surgery and did all this training 15, 20 years down the line and not be worth much at all. And that's the irony. And that's why I say to people, the earning a great income is fantastic, but developing habits and developing processes and systems and starting to invest early is probably the most important thing that you could do. So the answer to the question that people ask me is, when do I start investing? Is now a good time? Now is always a good time, provided that you've paid off your consumer debt, provided that you understand what you're investing in, and provided you have a good income and a disposable income. Okay, so make sure that you're not wasting money, you're putting that money, you're paying yourself first and taking at least 20% off the top and just investing right from early stages. So that was very, very apparent. So once again, what's the most important thing when it comes to personal finance and investing? Start saving early, start investing early. Don't wait until you graduate or become a consultant or become a surgeon or become a top-notch lawyer or whatever it is. Um, You know, don't wait. 
Start early. You don't need much money, especially in 2020. You don't need much money to start investing. Some of these index funds, passive investing, some of these stocks, they're very undervalued at the moment. So if you're into active investing, I say go for it. Learn your lessons early and apply them and apply those principles as early as you possibly can. Now, again, I maintain that people who don't retire comfortably are not the ones who worry about what type of investment they put their money into. It's the people who wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and never start investing in the first place. And I think that's a terrible, terrible thing to do. Now to the main topic, price to book ratio and return on equity. What do they mean? So let's talk about price to book ratio. It's essentially the company's stock of price divided by the book value per share. Now you're comparing what the market is pricing the company's stock at versus the company's assets. What are they actually worth? That's the ratio. To understand this a bit better, we need to understand a bit more about book value. So what is book value? Book value is, you know, companies often have assets. And this includes plant, equipment, furniture, land, etc. And these are called tangible assets. It's the assets that you can touch, see, and feel. The company may also have intangible assets, those which you cannot touch, feel, or see, such as patents, trademarks, goodwill, for example. Many tech companies, for example, have such assets on their balance sheet. Um, so one great tech company is Google and Alphabet, for example. It has buildings, land, servers, data centers, but really at its core business, it's an internet search company. And most of their assets is going to be buried into their softwares, their systems, their codes, which are closely guarded secrets. And this is called intangible assets, the trademarks and patents associated with those things. Goodwill, that's another form of intangible asset. Uh, this is an interesting concept. It just means companies may have a great brand name, a great customer base, great customer relations, which is exemplary, uh, employee relations, which is also great, proprietary technology. Uh, uh, all of these are considered intangible assets. If you look at a company like Apple, for example, they have all of this. They have a great fan base, have a great customer base, um, and they have a lot of intangible assets in terms of um, uh, in terms of goodwill. So the book value then becomes the net position of all of these assets combined. So it's how much a company's overall assets is worth uh, and that takes into account any liabilities. Now remember a liability is a legal responsibility for something. So in financial terms it's debt employee wages. Companies are legally responsible to pay back debt. So even personally if you have debt you are legally responsible to pay that off. So if you have a mortgage, you are legally responsible to pay that mortgage off. So then the formula for book value becomes book value equals numerator, total assets, tangible minus intangible assets and liabilities. Okay, so the total assets, which is the tangible minus intangible assets and liabilities, that is the book value. Now in personal finance, Book value has a slightly different meaning, and that is it's the price that you paid for the investment. So when you sell it, it's the sale price, and when you buy it, it's the book value. If the sale price is greater than the book value, the purchase price, then we call this capital gains. So in personal finance, you can argue that book value, the actual definition is slightly different, whereas in business and company finance, the book value definition is um, even more slightly different. 
So let's look at book value in a very, very simple way, a simplistic way. If the company were to be liquidated such that it paid off all of its debt and nothing existed to sell anymore, so sold off everything and paid off all of its debt, what money is left over on the table is the book value. And this money can then be distributed to its shareholders. Okay? So some of the common terms in other countries, I know in Australia we use net asset value, NAV as well, which is which is very similar to book value. And also in I think in the UK they use the term net book value. So these are all kind of mean very, very similar or same things. Okay. So um, I'm just going to talk about price to book ratio because that's the ratio that is often quoted. You can maybe talk about price to net value, net asset value ratio if you wanted to, but doesn't have the same ring to it. So just to be consistent in terms, if you go to Yahoo Finance and have a look at the statistics and have a look at the numbers, they use PE and PB ratios. And I think it's important to stick to that common nomenclature if we can. So why is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because you can find out how much shareholders will be left if the company were liquidated. So that's relevant. Uh, then you can compare this value, the book value, to the share value and then find out if the company is either undervalued or overvalued. Remember, the point of this is to find out whether if you're going to be active investors, you need to find out what you're buying is actually worth it or not worth it. If it's worth it, it's undervalued. If it's not worth it, it's overvalued. And that's what PE ratio is all about as well. So this is why using just one ratio is inadequate. You need to use multiple ratios and multiple um, uh, you know, statistical analysis to be able to do a proper stock fundamental analysis. And I'm just talking about you know, these basic ratios that everyone should be aware of. So, um, and, 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 I guess, and I guess you have to look at it in your own industry as well. So you can't compare a specific company across industries. And I'll talk about that a bit later in this episode and why it can be quite dangerous to do that. So at a book value, there are two main types of book value. So you can calculate the book value of a company at a specific set point in time. So that's possible. Or you can calculate the book value at various times in its history and compare it to the current market. Now, let's use an example to illustrate this point. So again, back to the lemon, lemon business, the pristine lemon juice, which is owned by Amy. Amy has a factory and mass producing bottles of lemon juice. Okay? It has grown from a small operation to a reasonably large operation. And the factory has plant and equipment. And Amy's company is making a profit of $100,000 per year by now. Remember, some of this profit is delivered back to shareholders via a voluntary corporate action called dividends. So refer to episode 76 if you haven't um, learned about corporate actions, but dividends are a voluntary type of corporate action. And some of that money that she's generated will go back to dividends and some of it will be retained and then reinvested um, back into her business. Now, assume all of the pristine lemon juice's assets, the tangible assets minus the intangible assets, etc., and no liabilities, assume she has no liabilities, is about $100,000. That is the um, total um, uh, uh, total book value. Um, sorry, I, I did say assume no liabilities. Let's make it a little bit complicated. Let's assume she has a $20,000 liability. So, the all of the assets, tangible minus intangible assets, is around $100K. And the liabilities, which is, you know, business debt, is about $20,000. 
So the book value of her company becomes 100K minus 20K, which is around $80,000. That is the book value of Amy's business. If that business was to be liquidated, that is what the shareholders will be left with, which can then be distributed amongst the shareholders. Okay. But there's a catch here. All right. The catch. This is the catch. Plant and equipment used to produce the lemon juice often depreciate, which means its value is reducing. Plant and equipment is considered tangible assets. Therefore, technically, these assets are reducing in value over time. Now, land for the factory, so if Amy has a factory on land, often appreciates in value over time. And this, again, affects the book value as its tangible asset. So therefore, if you calculated Amy's company's book value at various times in a business cycle, it's going to be different. It's not always going to be $80,000 because a plant and equipment value depreciates, whereas the land and, and, and other things in the company might appreciate. Okay, So therefore, you can calculate the book value at a historical value, that is what it was worth at a set specific time, and then use this as a reference point, or you can do a market-to-market comparison, which basically means calculating it perhaps every quarter to get a more accurate feel for the total book value. Okay, so if you just calculate a book value at a set point in time in the past, that's called a historical cost. That is a historical book value. But the latter method of doing a market-to-market comparison, you know, is called a market-to-market comparison. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know what a company's book value is today, but also what it was six months ago with the hope that the book value is actually higher today than it was six months ago. Otherwise, it's a sign for me that the company is not using its assets appropriately to earn an income. Now, if the company's book value is not rising over a period of time, that's a problem. That means their overall value of the company is not rising. Well, why would I want to buy stock in that company if their overall value is not rising? Okay. So then, now that we know what book value is, we need to work out what a price to book ratio is. Okay. So this is an important ratio, which determines what the company is valued at in relation to its entire asset portfolio, that is, its entire book value, okay? So therefore, the price-to-book ratio is a company's stock price divided by the book value per share. This leads to another subtopic, and that is we can't calculate the price-to-book ratio just by having the book value. We need to also have the book value per share. So what is the book value Per share. Well, this is a measure of how much money each shareholder will get if the company was liquidated and all of its assets were sold off and liabilities were taken care of. So this ratio is calculated using the common shares and not preferred shares. Now, preferred shares, I don't want to make it too complicated, but basically it just means the holders of these shares have a higher claim on dividends or asset distributions. They get their first dividends first, but often they don't have any voting rights. So it's a bit of a give and take. You get more in some respects, but you lose some rights in some respects. That's the difference between a common stockholder and a preferred stockholder. Now, to calculate the book value per share, all you need to do is know the total shareholder equity, that is, what is the total value of the shares, um, and again, disregard the preferred stockholders, and then divide it by the total outstanding shares, and that's called the common stock. So, is book value per share the same as market value per share? In short, 
No, it's not. Market value per share is a forward-looking, forward-projecting metric. Book value per share is a looking at historical value. Okay, so it looks at historical costs. So it's really important to understand the difference. Market value is not the same as book value. In other words, a strong company will excellent earnings, great management style, low cost, would likely have a higher market value per share in the future. So you may notice that book value per share is significantly less than market value per share. So let's use an example, all right? How can we use an example of a company that can do things to increase its market value per share, but underlying book value, it hasn't really changed very much. So Again, let's use Amy's business as an example. Amy's pristine lemon juice company is doing really well. She now has employees, board of directors, more investors, and the brand is really, really picking up. Customer service is picking up, and as a result, she has carved out a niche product to enhance the brand image. The market campaign reflects this, so they've done a lot of marketing here, which means the company can charge premium prices for the better product which in turn creates more brand image and demand, and as a result, the stock price goes up. So this means the market value of the company has increased due to marketing, excellent goodwill, which means the market value per share has increased. However, when you think about it, little has changed for the company. It's still a great company, don't get me wrong, but due to the marketing, it has increased the market value per share. It still produces great juice, it still has great management but the efforts of marketing has resulted in a net benefit to the company's underlying profits, okay? So the market value per share has increased, but the actual book value per share may be relatively the same. The company still has the same plant, same equipment, same amount of production, etc., etc. So again, you've got to understand the difference between book value per share and market value per share. So back to the main topic then, price to book ratio. We've calculated the book value, we've calculated the book value per share, so revisiting the formula then for price to book ratio becomes market price per share divided by book value per share. This is a simple equation, okay? So what does a price to book ratio actually tell you? It's just a comparison of what the market thinks the company's equity is relative to the book value of its equity. Remember, the market is a forecaster. It is predicting the company's future cash flow and as a result may attribute a higher value to the company relative to what the company is actually worth. So generally speaking, a PB ratio of less than one means the company is undervalued. A PB ratio of about 1 to 3 means the company is fair value, and a PB ratio of greater than 3 means the company may be overvalued. Now, such rules are just a generic metric. I warn you, don't use these rules rigidly. They're just generic metrics, and not one ratio is going to be be-all, end-all when performing fundamental stock analysis. You need to take into account the entire scenario. So, to give a medical analogy, because I know a lot of doctors listen to this podcast, if you were shown an arterial blood gas or a venous blood gas of a patient, the first thing you should not do is comment on the blood gas without actually knowing the scenario behind it. Okay, because the patient could be hyperventilating or hypoventilating or they could be, you know, um, having a hypoxic injury that's causing a low, uh, low oxygen sats or whatever it is that you might be doing. So you can't interpret a particular result of an ABG without the clinical scenario. And this is kind of like interpreting like that, to use an analogy. You can't just look at the price book ratio and say, oh, this is great, it's under one, um, so therefore it must be great company. 
Well, it may not be. It is a trap. So you need to make sure that you understand what is PB ratio and compare and contrast it with all the other stock fundamentals. And again, this is primarily done by active investors. Now, for value investors, often long-term investors, they'll look at the price-to-book ratio as one of the key metrics in their fundamental stock analysis, okay? So it must be used in context, and like like a PE ratio, it must be used within the same industry or sector. It's invalid and can be misleading if you compare companies from different industries, right? So let's use some real-life examples. So let's use two examples which we used in the PE ratio episode. And that is Woolworths and West Farmers, both in the retail industry, largely. Uh, Woolworths PB ratio um, at the time of recording this, which is the 19th of May, is 4.87. West Farmers PB ratio is 4.54. Now, comparing this to Qantas, completely different sector, Qantas PB ratio is 1.98. Okay. Now, just comparing all of these to another sector, a company like CSL, their PB ratio is 22.75. As you can see how the PB ratio is variable depending on what company, what sectors that you may choose to compare and contrast to. And just for fun, let's look at some of the other American giants. So Berkshire Hathaway, you know, famously, uh, you know, run by Warren Buffett, its PB ratio, the current stock price is $262,900 and its PB ratio is just 1.15. So according to ratios, it's a bargain. Comparing this to Apple, which is 17.11, it was only 7.42 just a year ago. Alphabet, parent of Google, is now 4.55. A year ago, it was 4.59. Tesla, 16.23, compared to 9.87 just a year ago. So you can see how just comparing PB ratios um, can be quite tricky. Microsoft is another one, 11.96 compared to 9.81 just a year ago. So therefore, you can't say in all of these settings, going back to Woolworths and West Farmers and Qantas, you can't say that Qantas is a way better company um, than West Farmers and Woolies and CSL. It's very misleading. I mean, Qantas is struggling at the moment. So just look at one matrix across various industries is just not adequate and it's misleading. So you need to look at it in your own sector, look at multiple multiple metrics, make sure you don't get trapped. Now, to cap off price-to-book ratio, let's go back to Amy's Pristine Lemon Juice Company again. We calculated her book value to be 80,000, assuming there are currently 100,000 shares outstanding, which means the, uh, the, the book value per share, beg your pardon, becomes 80,000 divided by 100,000, which is around 80 cents per share. So each share would represent about 80 cents of uh, book value, and assume the share price of pristine lemon juice is a dollar sixty. So the PB ratio then becomes a dollar sixty divided by eighty cents, which is two. In other words, the market is valuing Amy's company at twice the value of what its current book value is, and this is within considered a reasonable price if it's less than three. So that's basically book, price to book ratio using pristine lemon juice and Amy's company as an example. Now, PB ratios have their limitations. Okay, they. It doesn't work well for companies which mainly have intangible assets. So tech companies like Apple, Google, even Microsoft may not have uh, many tangible assets in comparison, but that doesn't mean their companies are not valuable. Okay, there are some, some of the most valuable companies in the world are tech companies, so beware. So it's good for companies which have a lot of plants and equipment like energy, transport, logistics, manufacturing companies or financial institutions. So PB ratios are quite easy uh, to interpret for such companies, but certainly for companies 
families that don't have that, it makes it quite tricky to interpret. It doesn't take into account companies which have high levels of debt. High levels of debt can be a good thing as debt can be used to buy assets which produce income, which drives more profits. But if the company has huge debts, it can essentially wipe out its book value. Can remember, we need to take out the liabilities when we're calculating the book value. And this means the book value per share is artificially low, which equals the denominator, which artificially then rises the PB ratio. So you've got to be a little bit careful about companies that are very, very high debt levels. Now, some assets of a company can age, which means they reduce its value. We talked about that with plant and equipment. So this affects the overall book value of the company. And some assets are more important in producing value and increasing earnings for a company than other assets. So in other words, the price to book ratio doesn't take into account the fact that not all assets are of equal significance. And sometimes PB ratios can be distorted if the company uses its cash to fund wages, superannuation plants, or buy its own shares back because that means the book value is artificially being reduced. So that's pretty much it about book value and book value per share and price to book ratio. Let's talk about another important ratio, which is called return on equity. Now, what is equity? Well, equity is basically the leftover if you sold an asset and paid off any liabilities. So, for example, if your home is worth $500,000, but you only have $200,000 in debt, then the equity is simply $500,000 minus $200,000, which is $300,000, okay? That is what equity is. Therefore, return on equity is simply the net income after taxes and divide this amount by the equity of the company. So that is return on equity. Mm -hmm. Now, let's use a personal finance situation to calculate that. Consider an investment property with equity of $300,000, um, which a lot of my listeners have investment properties. Suppose that property generates a net income per year after taxes of $10,000. The return on equity then becomes $10,000 divided by $300,000, which is around 3.33%. And this metric is, again, useful for comparing between companies in the same sectors and industries and should be used to compare between every uh, single company. So you, you, you can't use it to compare uh, between industry sectors. You want to try and compare it within the same industry and the same sector. Now, the net income when it comes to companies is the income left over after preferred stockholders have their paid their benefits, but before common shareholders get their dibs on the dividends as well. So for this formula, strictly speaking, the denominator is not just the total equity, it's actually called the average equity of the company. So what it means is that you must use a number at the beginning of any period rather than the end. Okay, so what does it actually mean? What does return on equity actually mean? It is a measure of how effectively the management of the company is using the company's assets to create profits. So it's a comparison number and should be used to compare companies within the same industry or the same sector. So let's use an example. Again, using Amy's pristine lemon juice company. Amy's company has an equity of $100,000. Her yearly profits after tax net income is $10,000. So therefore, pristine lemon juice company's return on equity is $10,000 divided by $100,000, which is 
10%. Now, if the entire fruit industry's average return on equity was just 5%, then by comparison, you can say Amy's company is doing wonders. That is, they're twice as more efficient and making twice as much more return using the company's assets. So Amy is using the company's assets very, very effectively to create a return which is twice as much as what the market average is. Okay, now closely aligned to return on equity to this ratio is something called retention ratio. So what is the retentions ratio? The retention ratio is the percentage of net income which is retained and invested back into the business as opposed to given out to shareholders as dividends. Now this is opposite to payout ratio. That is a percentage of the company's profits which is paid out as dividends to shareholders. You may have read about it in the media, particularly after the end of the quarter. They talk about the payout ratio being 10, 20, 30%. Um, so one can argue that a company in the growth phase of its life cycle should not be paying any dividends because it should be growing more value for its shareholders, whereas the flip side of that argument is, why would I invest in a company at all if they don't share a part of their profits with their shareholders as dividends? Isn't that just speculation? So that is a classic argument. You know, watch out for companies that pay out dividends because basically they're not allowed to grow. Uh, they're just, you know, eating into their profits to give out dividends to shareholders. But of course, your shareholders might be saying, well, if you're not going to pay me dividends, why am I going to invest? It's a bit like buying an investment property which doesn't produce any income. Now, you don't see people, you know, land, buying land uh, because land doesn't produce any income. You don't see a lot of people, you know, dying to buy land. Uh, well, some people are, but not many people are. A lot of people buy property because it produces income. So it's a bit like that. So the retention ratio is basically the percentage of net income, which is then retained and invested back into the business and is not paid out as dividends. Okay. So for growth companies, you can expect retention ratio to be relatively high, whereas for established companies, you might want the retention ratio to be relatively low, where their payout ratio might be higher. Okay, so that's the difference. So why is retention ratio relevant when used in combination with return on equity? Let's look at that. Now, you can use return on equity and retention ratio to highlight future growth rate of re return on equities, right? This is called sustainable growth rate. So let's use an example to highlight this point. I think it's very, very relevant. So Amy's Pristine Lemon Juice has a return on equity of 10%. We've calculated that already. Amy then chooses not to give out any dividends to her shareholders, which means the payout ratio is zero, whilst the retention ratio is 100%, because Amy has kept all of her profits to reinvest into the business. Fantastic. This means the return on equity growth rate now becomes 10% um, uh, multiplied by 1, because 1 meaning 100% of, uh, of the profits is being retained. And we know that the return on equity growth rate is 10%. So 10% multiplied by 1, so the return on equity growth rate is 10%. In other words, your ROE is going to grow at a rate of 10%. Now, that is quite incredible. That's an incredible growth rate, so really not sustainable. Now, supposing then, how would this change if Amy decided to pay out dividends to her shareholders for her company? So assume the payout ratio, the dividend payout ratio is 30%, which means the company retains 70% of its profit. Let's work out the sustainable growth rate. Then it becomes 10% which is the return on equity, multiplied by 0.7 because you're only retaining 70% of your uh, ROE, uh, of your profits, beg your pardon, and therefore your sustainable growth rate becomes 7%, not 10%, far more manageable. 
So you can see the growth rate is reduced in this example because dividends took some of the profits, which means there is less to reinvest into the business itself. So rather than using retention ratio, if you use payout ratio, you will end up with a dividend growth rate. So essentially, the um, sustainable ROE growth rate is, you can kind of say, inversely proportional to the dividend growth rate when you think about it, okay? So once again, using ROE by itself as the only measure to analyze a company's position is flawed. Um, so here's why it's flawed, just like don't use PB ratios or P ratios as the sole metric. You need to use it in combination. So why is ROE uh, ratio flawed if you just use it by itself? Now, if a company doesn't have any equity for several years and they carry those losses forward and eventually make a profit and become a great company, the first year they would have carried forward their losses, right? Which means the average shareholder equity is low. This creates an artificially high ROE, which is not sustainable. Here's another reason. Debt, again, debt can distort ROE. If a company borrows huge amounts of debt, the average shareholder equity goes down, which means for the same net income, the ROE is great, but this doesn't mean the company is great. It has heaps of debt, which is not reflected in the ROE, and debt may not be great for any company. So the company's debt-to-equity ratio may be very high, and this becomes a red flag, even though the ROE um, can be quite high. So debt can distort ROE. Now, before we finish up, um, we need to talk about one more ratio, and that is return on invested capital. What does that mean? Remember, return on equity looks at how well a company uses its equity to make money. The return on invested capital looks at how well a company uses its initial capital from various sources, shareholders, equity, debt, etc. to make money. So it factors in equity into this calculation. In other words, it's an indicator of the company's efficient use of capital to boost its earnings and profitability. Now, generally speaking, the benchmark for the um, uh, return on invested capital seems to be between 2 and 3%. If the return on investment capital is less than 2%, it's generally considered bad news. If it's greater than 2 to 3%, it's generally considered good news. So, pretty big episode. That's about it for this episode for PB ratio uh, um, in general. And uh, that's about it for the two-part series for ratios in general. We've discussed about ratios. We've discussed how to use them, what they mean, their benefits, the limitations, and their risks. Um, and a lot of it is technical analysis, uh, which is useful for active investors. As you know, I'm too boring. I don't actively invest. I'm very much a time in the market person. I'm very much a passive investor. I'm very much buying um, over time index funds. Um, in fact, I've never sold any stock portfolio index funds that I've ever bought, ever. Now, thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for questions and comments. Keep them coming. Uh, it's a great opportunity for me to learn from you as well. Some of the questions that I get on Facebook are very insightful. I, I absolutely love it when I get complex questions because it makes me think, uh, which is great, and, and, and which means we're all learning and we're all doing this together. Remember, to like Devraga Facebook page online. Shout out to questions and comments or topic suggestions via Facebook. So thank you very much. Share this channel with family and friends. It's free. You can share it online at devraga.com. D 
devraga.com. You can also download the castbox.fm app, which is probably easier to do that, and just subscribe to this channel, which is Devraga Personal Finance. You can also listen to it via Spotify. I know heaps of people have screenshotted Spotify and sent it to me via Facebook, so thank you very much. You can listen to it via Google Podcast um, uh, and, again, via devraga.com. And remember, always pay yourself first, 20% after-tax income. Try and achieve that. Set up habits and behaviors so that you don't forget to save and forget to invest. And next time you are looking at financial news, pay attention to ratios, even if you are an indexer like me, because they may come in handy. This is Devraga Personal Finance, Episode 78. And as always, make sure you stay safe. 